Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, HuffPost news editor Saba Hamadi and editor-in-chief of The Advocate, Zach Stafford. All right, let's start the show. Look, if you had one shot... Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my guest, Saba Hamidi, news editor at The Huffington Post, Zach Stafford, editor-in-chief of The Advocate. We are joined in studio by Eminem. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous. But on the surface, <laughs> I love the song. <laughs> it feels like every bad spin class I've ever yes. been to. Because oh they play God. this for the hill portion when yes. you're climbing. <laughs> They want to motivate you. Yes. Anyways, I'm playing it this week because our friend Eminem is in the news. Did you guys see why he's in the news He's this also week? in the news? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Everyone's in the news Everyone's this week. Here. So Eminem is in the news for kind of a funny reason. Um, this week, Eminem, one of the biggest rappers in the world, reminded us that he is just like us when he hate-tweeted at Netflix because he was mad that they canceled his favorite show. Oh, my God. What was his favorite show? Uh, he said, quote, on Twitter, Dear Netflix, regarding your cancellation of The Punisher, you are blowing it. <laughs> he was mad. He? He's oh just like us. I wonder if they'll bring it back if he'll support it. Because I'm sure he, he could still finance has, it. He could finance it, and he also has a ton of clout. Like his oh, yeah. his his fans would kind of sign up they for that and roll up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so weird to just see him being just like me. Because I was mad this week because Netflix also canceled one of my favorite shows, Friends from College. Really? Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And so like. I don't know. It's just too much. There's also mm-hmm. news this week that Netflix may cancel a very Latinx sitcom, oh, a One Day at a Time. Yeah, I saw that. The yeah, show creator tweeted, tweeted right? we don't know what's going to happen, just met with Netflix. And she tweeted a, a screenshot of Rotten Tomatoes ratings, and they have 100% across the board. So her thinking, I think, was like, Keep we are such show. a love show. Why would you do this to us? Yeah. And it I is get a it. great show, too. I think the reason people get so mad when Netflix takes away a show or mm-hmm. threatens to do so they get mad because you never really know the ratings, so you never yeah. know the rationale behind why Netflix took it away. Yeah. Like with the so usual true. sitcom, they're like, oh, it only had 200,000 viewers, it has yeah. to go. But Netflix is this black box of data, so we just don't know. Yeah. I also think that you get such a rush binging anything on Netflix that yeah. when they you wait for the next season, so when they're like, just kidding, no more, you're like, what, do you, what am what I going to do? What do you do? mean? <laughs> what am I, I was do? ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, fun fact about Netflix that I discovered once I started Googling about all the cancellations. Net, uh, last year, in 2018, Netflix said they planned to have 700 original shows and movies by the end of 2018. 700. That's, That's insane. insane. I heard that their budget for the past year was, I want to say, it's like $3 billion. It's in the billions, for it's sure. billions. And that is just crazy it's to me. So you need to think about the show since a they canceled it because it was too expensive, and then right after that they got a new round of funding, I guess, <laughs> and just started spending more money than ever oh on everything. Goodness. But like that's a lot of content. It's crazy. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, Eminem, Marshall Mathers, I sympathize. Netflix, fix it. <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to start the show, as we always do. I'm going to ask each of my guests and myself to describe our week of news in only three words. Zach Stafford, you know how this goes. You're yes, first. I do. All I right. Do. Uh, so my three words for this week are anger, 
reflective, and commitment. Mm. And these words all relate to the Jesse Smollett situation. Quick explanation is Jesse Smollett reported a hate crime, uh, an alleged hate crime in January. And he's a star uh, and of the Boncho Empire. Yes, he's a star of Empire. Made national news because it was by alleged Trump supporters. Um, there was a noose involved, racial and homophobic epithets used. Um, but then as the investigations uh, kind of unraveled, the police are now saying he made it all up and it was a hoax. But I think I picked those three words because, you know, What's something that's been really common throughout this whole situation is anger, whether anger that hate crimes are happening or mm-hmm. anger that people are lying about them. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've been talking about this a lot and reporting on it. And I think that anger is good because anger is a secondary emotion. And I think it allows you to see where you're at in the situation, mm-hmm. um, which is where it brings me to the, the phrase or term reflective, because I think the situation and where you're how you're responding to it tells you how you feel about different identity based crimes, mm-hmm. how you feel about identities. You know, a lot of the far right is saying, hey, victim narratives are real. Look, like the left is just making up things to make us look bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jesse, if found guilty, would be a great example of that. And we see Jesse potentially lying about this Mm -hmm. story at a moment in which hate crimes across the country are up. The data speaks to this so clearly. So this study that came out from Cal State University, San Bernardino, found that hate crimes in America's 10 largest cities were up 12.5% in 2017. Mm -hmm. Southern Poverty Law Center they had a story out this week saying that their hate group count in yeah. the U.S. hit a 20-year high mm-hmm. in 2018. Yeah. So just the Smollett story, potentially a hoax, mm-hmm. it is entirely counter to the real narrative yes. of what is happening to black people, to mm-hmm. queer people, to trans people, to Jewish people, to yeah. marginalized people across the country. Yeah. And a lot of folks are saying, hey, Jesse, you set back mm-hmm. – the cause. Some vital, vital work. Yeah. And so many of the nonprofits that came out in support of him in the beginning and politicians are, have been vocal advocates of stopping hate violence. And so that's where they ran to the story really quickly to say, oh, my God, we have a high profile case we can use to pass legislation, which happened with Senator Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. They mm. literally passed uh, anti-lynching legislation on the Senate floor. And they did that by using Jesse's story and talking wow. about him because he did have a noose involvement. Can we just pause to... Note that there still hasn't been anti-lynching legislation right out there. Wow. And that's what's like so insane to us is that like where I'm thinking with my third word is a commitment is that it, the word is commitment. And it's because, you know, on both sides, people are both wanting, you know, this violence to disappear. And they are showing a commitment to erase it in some ways, sometimes a really bad commitment to erasure. The other is a, a commitment to like solving it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. And I hope that's a unifier across this. And I do think the Jesse Smollett situation, if he is found guilty, could be a great example if yeah. people are open to it of talking about he is an anomaly. Exactly. He statistically is not representative of everybody. Yeah. There's a huge swath of people. I mean, I, something I keep saying to people is that if he did stage this, he didn't need to pay someone to create a hate crime. It was probably going to happen anyway, <laughs> and he could have just used that hate crime to yeah. talk about it. Yeah. I will say it is an interesting time for the Chicago Police Department. Ooh. They have a very interesting record on mm-hmm. race relations in that city, on investigating crimes like this period. Mm-hmm. And... The strong wording you heard in their press conference this week, the number of detectives assigned to the story, 24 detectives assigned to this one case, 
that also is an anomaly. I yes. think that a lot of critics are saying mm-hmm. to CBD right now, you're not around on other stuff that affects our community. Yep. In fact, you are antagonistic sometimes to these marginalized communities. And Zach, yeah. you've covered CBD for a while, huh? Yeah, I have. I've sat in the police headquarters. I've heard of many press conferences. And I have never seen that department so passionate really? about a situation like this. I've never seen them use language where they say racist and homophobic. They usually don't move in that area. They're very, you know, kind of French with it where they're like, you know, all crime is just crime. Identity is not mm-hmm. a part of this. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. Um, and then... You know, for them to then, without a guilty verdict, really reprimand someone that is still oh, innocent yeah. until they proven guilty. They told him pretty much to man up. You wow. should come forward. I was like, this feels like a kitchen table conversation. This feels like something that we as family would talk about yeah. privately. And Chicago police really pivoted their PR around this. And it was really stunning because they historically have never done this. I have never seen a hate crime case with really? 24 detectives ever. Yeah. Well, and it is really hard to overstate the amount of skepticism that marginalized communities in Chicago have towards CPD. I mean, if you look back in the history of this police department, just a few years ago, uh, they were accused of having secret torture black sites Mm -hmm. in Chicago to harass folks that they were investigating. That was my story. I don't know if we've talked about We've talked about this stuff, but there was a Homeland Square facility. It was me and Spencer Ackerman spent two years while we were at The Guardian working on it, and we found that Chicago police had disappeared over 7,000 black people. Disappeared. Disappeared. And when we say disappeared, we mean they picked them up for an alleged crime, and over a 48-hour period before being booked at a police station, they weren't in any system. And they didn't know where they were, and some of them have come forward and said they were tortured, um, they were beaten, or they were flipped to made snitches. Um, And the snitch kind of system in Chicago is really important because during the war on drugs, the Chicago Police Department focused on getting people in the community to rat on each other or Mm. tell the secrets of the community so they could arrest them. And Homeland Square was the facility in which that snitching became a reality for people. Yeah. So many good thoughts there. Just to close, you know, Zach, you were telling me before we came in the studio, like, this story has so many layers. You, as a black queer man, have been getting death threats all week mm-hmm. just for covering the Jesse story. Yeah. And what's been so interesting to try to reconcile is I'm a black guy, I'm gay, uh, and I report on crime. And my body, many times, is also the subject of these crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Chicago, I have faced my own incidents of hate. And mm-hmm. The police have not been helpful. Mm-hmm. And then to report on them and then to say things like, you know, Chicago police have openly lied. It's well documented. Mm-hmm. And then people to say, you know, you're lying for Jesse you deserve to die now and then them to say that Jesse's lying is crazy to me because I'm like your retribution for me if I lie is proving that this is is a real problem exactly is saying that I should face the reality that Jesse's saying he faced so it's kind of this like weird hypocrisy that just shows me that you know a lot of these people are white supremacists they don't believe black lives matter um, and don't want to believe black stories and I I want to figure out how do we change that yeah so on that note Saba you have three words Yes, I'm ready to go. Uh, completely different note. Okay. <laughs> My three words are money, momentum, and skepticism. Who are we talking about? So here? we are talking about Bernie Sanders. Oh, yeah. He is back. He's running again. Yeah. My first word, money, is because he, in his first 24 hours, raised $6 million. <laughs> mm-hmm. What I thought was interesting about the money is I read this article where of the $6 million, about 600000 of it, uh, his campaign said they received from people who have signed up to automatically donate each wow. month. That means that he's going to keep getting money a, lot of money, a yeah. lot of money, even though it's in a smaller amount from all these different yeah. types of people. And it, 
it really benefits the candidate because, first of all, he doesn't have to spend as much time and energy campaigning. And then second of all, it gives him the opportunity to say, I am this is for the people like this model, you mm-hmm. know, and like I'm here for you. You yeah, know, yeah. I'm not just campaigning yeah, exactly. <laughs> for money. Now, your two other words were momentum and skepticism. Yes. What do you mean by that? So momentum, I just felt like um, the money shows how much people have been waiting for him, I think, to come yeah. back. Mm-hmm. So and I think that I'm waiting to see what momentum this time around will come. Like all already people seem re-energized by him. Yes. You actually tweeted about this the other yeah. day. You know, who is going to be not re-energized just yet? Because a lot of things have changed, obviously, in the last two years. And the parties changed. The Mm -hmm. parties changed. I I think one thing that I've been thinking about is you mentioned in your tweet that people thought, you know, Bernie didn't appeal to people of color, Mm -hmm. especially young people of color, but he actually did. Yeah. But I will say that time around, you know, the choice, you know, is two white white candidates. This time, there's so many other people in this fight. And I think... It'll be interesting to see, you know, I think people do want to see someone that looks like them. So I think there's a lot of other options out there that Bernie didn't have to deal with before. Yeah. You know, when he came on the scene for the denomination in 2015, he was preaching a new gospel Mm -hmm. for the party. But now that gospel has been adopted and accepted by just about everyone running right Right. now. So things that he was pushing that seemed novel a few years ago are now part of the basic platform for all these candidates, like health care for all, you know, like higher taxes. His message has been co-opted by so many other candidates Mm -hmm. right now. The big question for me is, does the Democratic Party need him as much as it did to move their message, you know, last time? I also have some big questions from my time covering him before as well. Like one of the things that dogged him throughout the entire time he ran last time was that he was only a single issue candidate, that he could only talk about the economy. And he was critiqued by even people close to him for that. He famously one day after a terrorist attack, uh, he had his team come out and tell the press before a press conference don't ask about ISIS today. We're only talking about the economy. And it's like <laughs> he has to answer these questions still. Can he can he talk about more sure. than one issue? You know, there are questions about how he yeah. can appeal to voters of color. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest question hanging over Bernie's head is how many Democrats are going to get behind a candidate for the Democrat nomination who is not an actual Democrat. Exactly. There's still bad blood in the party so over angry the about fact that. that he's not a Democrat. And Man. all of this leads to my third word, skepticism. <laughs> because I do think that me and other reporters and all that, we didn't necessarily have that before about him because it was just like this a very different situation. But mm-hmm. now it's like, oh, there's all these other things going on, all these other questions to have about him. And I think it's a whole other ballgame. Y'all, I have three words. They are full of surprises. <laughs> this is about the Supreme Court of the United States. I love Supreme Court season and we are in it. This week, there was a unanimous ruling, which is a surprise yes. given the totally. makeup of this court. Totally. The court voted to limit civil asset forfeiture, which mm-hmm. also limits states' ability to use fines to raise revenues. So the case that made up to the court for this ruling, it was very interesting. So we all know that when someone's arrested, lots of police departments across the country, they seize the property that's in the house or in yeah. the car when they arrest you. Yeah. And uh, there was an issue because a guy named Tyson Timms, uh, he was arrested in Indiana for selling a small amount of heroin to undercover cops. Uh, when he was arrested, they seized his $42,000 Land Rover. 
And he wow. said, you can't do that. That's not right. This case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court this week. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can't do that. The fine is too high. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Um, and it was this issue in which you saw the left flank of the court and the right flank of the court agree. And I think part of it is because this kind of issue hits a sweet spot for both the left and the right. The left is really concerned with protecting the rights of those who are arrested. And the right is really concerned with the government not taking your stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So this story was like one way in which we saw consensus on the court this week. And it's like this for me underscores the fact that the way in which candidates and politicians campaign on stuff usually isn't the way it is in the real world. So much of the messaging from candidates and from parties on the Supreme Court is like either life or death, Mm -hmm. an extreme left or an extreme right, the end of the world as we know it if one justice is approved. And in actuality, the court moves sometimes by small gradation Mm -hmm. and they can surprise you because the court is full of surprises time for a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the Oscars and their very weird, very strange year. A question I've been thinking for a while now is, are we all collectively over the Academy Awards for good? I ask a very smart film thinker and reporter, and she says, not exactly. She'll explain after the break. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. The current tension between the United States and North Korea is really intense, and it's easy to forget that the two countries have a complicated past. On the latest episode of Throughline from NPR, we look back at the origin of this strained relationship to make sense of what's happening today. Throughline, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Zach Stafford, editor-in-chief of The Advocate, which is what the longest-running magazine or publication covering issues affecting the LGBTQ community. That was great. Yes. Okay. Yes. 1967. <laughs> right. Yeah. It predates Stonewall riots. Look so. at that. Yes. Wow. Yes. She's old. Yeah. <laughs> I am not that old, but she's old. Yeah. Also here with Saba Hamidi, news editor at the Huffington Post. But now is it it's just HuffPo or HuffPost yeah, or what? Now it's just HuffPost. But Into you know it. Yeah. Into it. Love it. Um, I was back home last week to see my mother for her birthday. She's a Valentine's baby. Amazing. Aww, and whenever fun. I'm back home for more than like 12 hours, I start thinking about my childhood and how weird of a kid I was. <laughs> and I remember when I was back home that when I was a kid, around eight or nine years old, I used to keep a small bottle of apple cider vinegar <laughs> on my person. What? <laughs> and take sips every now and then as if it were a flask <laughs> and it was like whiskey in there. Wow. And I would just sip my little apple cider vinegar all the time. <laughs> 
So it's very theatrical, right? Of you. That's <laughs> incredible. I know, yeah. right? I was a weird kid. So I tweeted this out and asked other folks to like tell me their weird childhood food habits as well. Uh, this one tweet took off, and like six thousand people told me the weird <laughs> stuff they used to eat oh, as my kids. God. And I'm gonna tell you some of those. But first, I want to ask you both: What are uh, some weird things that you ate as children? Oh God, I have it, but I I don't know if I'm ready to say. Oh, it on you gotta public say radio. it. You gotta say it. <laughs> okay, when I was like four, my mom found me in like our yard. Uh huh. I had in my hand. <laughs> like three little roly polies. Oh no. And then I ate one in front of her. <laughs> what did she do? She freaked out. But would you eat them habitually? Like was this like... I don't know. But <laughs> I will say that I guess that's the weirdest thing I ever okay. ate. Okay. Exact but, uh, weird food. I can't recall a weird food, but I can recall a weird food habit. Tell me. So when as a kid, I got made fun of for being a chipmunk because if I ate anything, I wouldn't swallow it. I would <laughs> chomp it and uh-huh. get it mushy and store it in my cheeks uh-uh. and like walk around with it. Uh-uh. Oh my so goodness. I have like a weird chipmunk ability. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you some of the weird things people told me they did okay. with food when they were kids. Um, one, a lot of people said they ate cat food, they ate dog food, and they ate raw bacon and raw hamburger meat. That was what? a big trend. Some stuff got more oh. specific. Um, NPR's very own Lauren Magaki tweeted, quote, at same as you, at snack time, I would chew Cheez-Its into a pulp, store them in my cheek like a chipmunk, and then go spit the mash in the toilet to see what Cheez-Its looked like when they were in my oh stomach. Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel so seen. Wow. All right, last one. And this blew me away. It was my favorite by far. Um, Rachel Charlene tweeted at me. She said when she was a kid, quote, my sister and I ate pool chips. Tortilla chips we dipped in the swimming pool outside of our apartment <gasps> and ate religiously for like a year. So they love chlorine. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. Shout out pool chips. How do children survive? I guess if it's a really salty chip and you put it in the chlorine, it's oh my less salty. Does it cut the salt? Okay. So, <laughs> yes. Like, the pool is a giant salsa bowl. Like, what is <laughs> Pool chips. Pool chips. Hashtag pool chips. Uh, listeners, let us know your wacky eating habits that you had as kids or as adults. I am curious. Um Enough of kids. Let's talk about adults behaving strangely. I'm talking about the Academy. <laughs> Which is very strange these days. Yes. Uh, the Oscars are this weekend. And just, uh, full disclosure, I think we all know at this point, the Oscars are having kind of a bad year. Uh, for weeks, if not months, there was a saga over them having and getting a host. Now they're going to go hostless uh, this weekend at the Oscars. Although there was this secret rumor that Whoopi Goldberg might be a surprise host night of. Really? Mm. Who knows? Time will tell. So I called up Kim Masters. Uh, She covers the movie industry for The Hollywood Reporter. She also hosts a show all about the biz. It is called The Business uh, at KSRW. And my question for her was simple. Are the Oscars still a thing? So first question for you, Kim Masters. When is the last time the Oscars have had a year this bad before the Oscars even air? (laughs) I don't think we can remember. And when you say this bad, I assume you're referring to the many Academy missteps that started with the popular picture category and continued from there. Yeah, this is... This has been a bad one. I mean, you have to bear in mind, as you probably know, the show dropped very precipitously in ratings last year. Mm -hmm. So what you see is an academy that's caught between trying to keep the show important and, of course, Disney and ABC, which airs the show, leaning on the academy to make it 
popular and interesting and at the same time preserve the Academy's mission of honoring the best in film. And there's a tension there. But all of these problems, do they just speak to a maybe, perhaps a bigger question, which is, are Americans just starting to be over award shows, period? And no matter what the Academy does, we're just kind of falling out of love with award shows? Well, we may be. I mean, I think there's too many of them, and they yeah. uh, most most they go before the Oscars. I think the Golden Globes have become a big problem because the mm. Globes are More kind fun. of, you know, they're Oscar very light, but it's fun, yeah, and, and TV is involved, and everybody dresses up, and it, it's kind of like a big prom that comes before the Oscars, and I think maybe there's a little bit of burnout. And maybe it's also a problem that certainly the past few years, the big popcorn movies, they don't get nominated. They tried to expand the field of nominations to up to 10 to, mm-hmm. you know, that was like trying to get the Dark Knight in there and, and and stuff like that. And it didn't really seem to help. I have a question about a movie that is not up for Oscars this weekend, but has made me question a lot of the Oscar process. Uh, I'm talking about Sorry to Bother You, this really interesting, quirky movie about late capitalism. Anyways, the buzz was good for this film. A lot of folks were hoping for Oscar nominations for the movie. It got shut out. But then the filmmaker, Boots Riley, he spoke out about it and he tweeted a few tweets about it. And he said, quote, the largest factor as to why we didn't get nominated is that we didn't actually run a campaign that aims to get a nomination. And he goes on to basically say, like, we didn't want to play that game, so we didn't get nominations. And that made me feel bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> how much do we not really think about what goes into getting these nominations? Like, they, the Oscars pretend it's all about merit, but, like, I found out that Roma, which is up for Best Picture... The film itself cost $15 million to make. The marketing budget for it and the lobbying budget for it was between 25 and $30 million. Right. As far as we know, and it could be more. Yeah. I mean, Netflix argues that part of that was just advertising it would have done anyway. But well, uh, yes, Oscar campaigning is an industry. You know, I hate to bring up Harvey Weinstein, but you can't really talk about it without talking. It's creation, yeah. It, he started the kind of dirty war, you know, <laughs> uh, the whisperous campaigns he was always blamed for. I'm sure he would deny that he had anything to do with that. But... Yes, there is a giant, I mean, I can't even tell you the invitations that come in. And there are rules that the Academy puts out there, what you can and cannot do to campaign. And then there's a whole organization, a whole industry that tries to figure out how to circumvent or go up to the very, very line of the rules. And even people who you would think, they're just not going to play the game. They play the game. game. (laughs) They come in here and they play the game. One of the other things I've been wondering about and how it's been playing out is... We're now a few years into the Academy's big push to diversify. Um, The Academy recently greatly increased its number of voting members to bring in younger folks, to bring in more diverse people. How is that working? You know, it's interesting. I think it is having an impact. There's kind of an old academy and a new academy is the feeling a lot of people have right now. And Hmm. you've seen it with this Green Book versus um, Black Klansman or Roma or anything else. I mean, there is a strong feeling out there among a lot of people that Green Book is a throwback to, you know... Some white savior stuff going on there. Well, a little, yeah, and a little on the nose and simplistic. And yes, I asked Spike Lee when we had him on the show how he felt about, you know, he had do the right thing, had lost out to driving Miss Daisy. And I said, well, how about if you lose out to Mr. Daisy driving, you know? So (laughs) that's my little joke. But the point is, that is an old school Mm. academy, older white academy voters, crowd pleaser. And then there's a view about 
how about something like that's more diverse? And that's where you'll see, like with Roma or Black Klansmen or Black Panther, does the younger and more diverse membership of the Academy really hold sway right now? And I would just say with an asterisk that the way the Academy voting works is weird and you mm-hmm. list, you know, in ranking. And I kept, couldn't explain it if you gave me a hot, big incentive to figure out how to explain it. Mm. But uh, it can lead to odd results. So even if we get, if somehow Green Book jumps out and wins, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that proves it, you know, one way or the other. It could be a fluke. But on the other hand, I do feel like a lot of people see the new guard versus the old guard in that setup. So we're in this place now where the Academy is trying very hard to not just diversify, but to stay current and to stay relevant and to get the ratings up. And you still have this industry in which studios spend a lot, a lot of money and time lobbying to get an Oscar. But looking at the waning popularity of the Academy Awards themselves, is an Oscar in 2019 still worth it? I think that a lot of people would say yes. I mean, these people don't suit up and go out over and over again. And in some cases deal with unpleasant situations like Rami Malek, who has to kind of answer questions constantly about the director of Bohemian Rhapsody, Brian Singer, and the allegations of child rape against this guy. And he has been everywhere because obviously to him, it absolutely is worth it. It's worth it to the studios to have the nomination. It's Hmm. Everybody wants to get graded, you know, and everybody (laughs) wants an A plus. So it's still the most meaningful full award, I think, for a lot of people, and they want it. I'm such a fan. Kim Masters, tell folks how to find and where to find your show. We are The Business on KCRW. You can find it on iTunes or anywhere you find a podcast. And uh, it drops Friday afternoons, the fresh ones, and it's fun. We have a lot of uh, people who are in this race. A lot of people in the race. I'll be watching and listening, too. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. So... Both of you, question for you. Do you think that the Oscars are honoring the right films this year? My favorite film of 2018 is Missing, and that was Eighth Grade. I don't know if you guys saw it, but I I loved that movie. And I thought that it was like really raw and real, and I'm a big fan of Bo Burnham. If you're listening, Bo Burnham, (laughs) (laughs) just just to let you know, you're great. So that was for me my personal take. For me, the one movie I do think got really looked over is Steve McQueen's Widows. I saw Widows Thanksgiving night with Aunt Betty. Shut up. And both of us were like, this is it. It's everything. It's so good. So, and like, they are a really great example, a classic example of like, if your marketing campaign is not good, sure, you will yeah. be snubbed. Same and for like, Bill Street. If yes. Bill Street could talk as one of the best reviewed yeah. films of the oh year, but it's been shut out of the major categories because people think the marketing campaign yeah, wasn't what it should good. have been. So, like the things that are actually voted on or talked about the most are the things that have the most financial backing to mm-hmm. buy billboards everywhere and market. I think we're in a time where people are able to smell when things are kind of BS Mm. um, and they know that the Oscars is a pageant Mm. and that it's really about money and access Mm. and all these other things and they're kind of over it. All right, time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. BRB. I loved that you said BRB. I'm really, I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm really bad at games. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Oscar season, and we don't want you to show up on the red carpet unprepared. That's why Pop Culture Happy Hour is here to help you sort through the nominees and separate the best from the rest. Listen now, and we might even help you dominate your Oscars pool. 
You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Saba Hamidi, news editor at HuffPost, and Zach Stafford, editor-in-chief of The Advocate. Thank you both for being here. It is time for the challenge portion of this show. My favorite game, Who Said That? Ooh, and they saying that. This is a very simple game. Zach, you've played it before. Yes. Uh, I read a quote, you guess who said it, and right. um, the winner gets absolutely nothing. Uh, like life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of these quotes have come from this week of news. Um, so let's see if you follow the news closely enough, okay. okay? Ready? First quote. I pray that your kind words and well wishes will help me to put my best paw forward in my future without Daddy Carl Lagerfeld and as my own woman. Uh, it's Carl Lagerfeld's cat. Yes. I don't know his name. <laughs> the, the cat's name is Choupette. Who has a big Twitter following. Yes, yes. <laughs> Choupette is in the news this week because Choupette's father, Carl Lagerfeld, passed away. Uh, we all know Carl Lagerfeld as the iconic designer, creative director for Chanel and Fendi. He died in Paris this past Tuesday. And he left a lot of his fortune, it's believed, to the cat. To the cat. What? Yes. Yeah. The cat was at fashion shows with him. How did I miss this? It's, I mean, you know, it's been a little busy this week. <laughs> um, but it seemed as if Choupette may have already been rich. Uh, the cat had a large fortune of its own. Apparently, the cat made $3 million before Lagerfeld's mm-hmm. death doing advertisements for a German car firm and a Japanese cosmetics brand. Yeah. The cat is an influencer. Would you <laughs> leave your inheritance to your dog? No. <laughs> Zora is so sweet. Zora, and also there are enough people that love Zora that if I was disappeared tomorrow, she'd be well taken care of. <laughs> okay. So she don't need no money. All right, uh, Zach, you're up one zip. Damn. It's okay. Here we go. You can, you can come back. Okay. Next quote. Ready? Sorry, I'm just trying to get some ranch. Who said that? Y'all oh, know the, this. okay. I know the woman who was at uh, Senator Gillibrand's campaign event, campaign in, event Iowa. in Iowa. Yes. yes. So we should tell this story to folks. Um, this week, one of the many Democratic candidates for president, Kristen Gillibrand, was campaigning in Iowa at uh, the airliner restaurant, and all of a sudden, this University of Iowa senior, Hannah Kinney, walks right past her and interrupts her. We have the tape of what she said as she interrupted Gillibrand. Mid speech. Back away from the bold ideas that the, 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 the base and the grassroots care about. Sorry, oh, sorry. I'm just trying to get some ranch. I'm just trying to get some ranch. But it's very relatable. She just wanted some ranch dressing for her pizza. She says that her and her friends meet at this restaurant for Bible study all the time, and they Bible study with Incredible. the pizza and the ranch. Uh, so, and she was trying to get her ranch. She's like, I, don't I care. feel you. Wow. She's a mood. Real. It's yeah, true. I love tough. ranch. All right, the game is tied. This one's for all the marbles. Here is the quote. Quote. Speaking for myself and my immediate Jamaican family, we wish to categorically dissociate ourselves from this travesty. Who said that? Wow. Who is the most prominent Jamaican in the news right now? Oh, my God. I don't know. Because it's about Involved in politics. It's not Kamala Harris. It is Kamala Harris. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, it is. She is half Jamaican and half... Yes, gosh. Half Jamaican, half Indian. So Kamala Harris's father issued a scathing statement about his daughter's recent comment on marijuana. So... um, Stanford professor Donald Harris, who is father of Kamala Harris and Jamaican, he was mad when his daughter talked about smoking weed on The Breakfast Club this week. And when she was asked if she's ever (laughs) smoked weed, she said, quote, half my family's from Jamaica. Are you kidding me? As if to imply, well, of course, all Jamaicans smoke weed. (laughs) Her dad was not having it. He said this was an embarrassment. And how dare she say this? Such a black dad. (laughs) 
He's like, I don't Do care how famous you shame are. on this family. Not- <laughs> Do not bring shame on this family. So we should play uh, the quote in question because this quote has been giving Kamala Harris problems now for like two weeks. We have the interview audio from her appearance on the New York radio show, The Breakfast Club. Also, and I know the answer to this too, they say you oppose legalizing weed. That's not true. I know. <laughs> and, and, and look, I joke about it, half joking. Half my family's from Jamaica. Are you kidding me? Wow. <laughs> and then they also asked her if she smoked weed in college. And some people think her answer uh, had her saying that she was listening to Snoop Dogg while smoking weed in college. And then some folks were like, actually, Snoop Dogg wasn't making music when you were in college. There's been so much I did hear about Snoop Dogg, yes. yes. So much fallout from this interview. It's like... I assumed we were going to be over this after, I don't know, Presidents Clinton and Obama both admitted nope. that they smoked weed. Nope. Running for president sounds hard, by the way. Just because <laughs> like, sounds so I, awful. Everything you say is just... It's a, wow. Can I get a Kamala Harris family drama on Netflix that is oh, not canceled? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> don't cancel on Netflix. <laughs> All right. Uh, Zach, you won. Oh, my God. I won this. Wow. <laughs> you're, you're a winner. winner. <laughs> You're a winner. Everybody's a winner. Everybody's a winner. All right, now it's time to end the show as we do every week. We ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Anjali, hit the tape. Hey, Sam. This is Ilan from Oakland. And five years ago, my husband and I started opening our home to gay and lesbian refugees from countries where they're being persecuted. And the best thing that happened to us this week is when the first refugee who stayed with us got his American citizenship. He was so proud to become an American citizen, and we are so proud of him. You go, Omar. This is Jacob from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the best thing this week is that after living with my in-laws for three months, my wife, toddler, and our dog are moving into our new home. Hi, Sam. This is Gina from Ohio, and the best thing that happened to me this week was finally giving birth to my daughter 10 days past her due date on Valentine's Day. She was just waiting for the right birthday. The best thing that happened to me this week is that I learned that my first article has been accepted to a peer-reviewed journal. The best part of my week was having two of my best friends from Texas brave the cold to come visit me and my three-month-old daughter. The best thing that happened to me this week was catching up Valentine's Day style with two friends that I've gotten to work, play, laugh, and love with for more than 10 years now. Hey Sam, this is Brittany from Lewiston, Maine, and the best part of my week is that after four days of stress and six missed calls, my boyfriend and my father finally got to talk on the phone and my dad gave us his permission to get married. And on Friday, we're going to City Hall to make it official. Hey Sam, this is Roberta calling from Denver, Colorado. The best thing that happened to me this week was getting to see my father, who for most of my life has dealt with major depression and addiction. And when I saw him this week, he was sober and doing really well. And there was a weight that was lifted from me getting to see him like that. So I hope you had a great week, too. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Bye. Oh, my God. I'm sort of crying right at the beginning. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I will say uh, kudos to the couple who is not waiting more than a few days after that father's blessing to get it done. Right? (laughs) They're like, we're not playing around. Time is short. Time is short. It's snowing in L.A. Like, (laughs) you don't know what could happen. What's going on? Thanks to all the folks you heard there. Elon, Jacob, Gina, Carl, Caroline, Ben, Brittany, Roberta, and uh, the new parents in that mix. Send us baby photos. 
Always love seeing those. Also, dog photos from anyone who wants to send them. Bring them in. All right, listeners, you can have your voice be part of this segment as well. At any point throughout any week, email me the sound of your voice telling me the best part of your week. Send that voice file. Uh, to samsanders at npr.org samsanders at npr.org we're gonna go out on someone who maybe did not have the best week this week talking about eminem uh, who tweeted this week anger at netflix because they canceled his favorite show punisher sorry marshall mathers Um, (laughs) netflix fix it All right, all right, all right. Thanks to my guests, Saba Hamidi, news editor at the Huffington Post, Zach Stafford, editor-in-chief of The Advocate. This week, the show was produced by Anjali Sastry, Brent Bachman, and we had help from our special friend, Samantha Balaban. Thank you for taking some time off of Weekend Edition to help us out this week, Sammy. Uh, The show was engineered this week by Marcia Caldwell. Steve Nelson is our director of programming. Our editors are Jordana Hochman and Alex McCall. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. Listeners, refresh your feed Tuesday morning for my chat with Michaela Cole. I'm a big fan of hers. She is perhaps most well-known for her portrayal of a sex-crazed former evangelical Christian on the very funny Netflix comedy Chewing Gum. She has another show out on Netflix, a thriller called Black Earth Rising. Do not cancel them, Netflix. Uh, I talk with Michaela Cole about how she makes art that is true to herself, how she handles the haters, and why she does not care what you think about her hair. Until then, listeners, do not miss your chance to blow. Have a wonderful weekend and a wonderful next week. Uh, Till next time, I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. You only get one shot to tweet hate at Netflix when they cancel your show. Oh, my God. (laughs) Sam has bars. Bars, bars, bars. You did it.